Hey, lovebirds. August is Podcast Appreciation Month, and I just made that up, but it sounds good. If this show has had a meaningful impact on your life and you would like to thank me, the best thing you can do is become a contributing lovebird by making a small but meaningful monthly contribution to this show. This show costs quite a bit of money to produce, and I need your support. If you are in a position to contribute, then I invite you to do so by going to thelovedrive.com forward slash join. Monthly contributions start for as little as $5 a month or the price of a decent latte. And that might not sound like a lot, but it makes a huge difference in my life. Go to thelovedrive.com forward slash join. And for everybody who's already a contributing member, thank you. Thank you so much. Here's your episode. 75% of people are not satisfied with the friendships that they have. Straight up three quarters of people. Three out of four people, when you meet them, they are not satisfied with their friendships. Whoa, that's a scary statistic, but don't worry because in this episode, we're going to unlock some tools to help people make more friends. My guest is Jillian Richardson. She is the creator of the Joylist NYC, which is a newsletter of events that happen in New York where you can go alone and leave with a friend. She's also the author of Unlonely Planet. How Healthy Congregations Can Change the World. And her mission is to make the world a less lonely place. Today, we're talking about connection and loneliness, and also how to make friends and what skills are required to create lifelong connection, how to authentically relate to people, how to meet people, what to say when you meet a new person. This is an important conversation because loneliness is a systemic issue. And it's incredibly heartbreaking to not have people to depend on and to share with. My name is Sean Galanos, and this is The Love Drive. Okay. You're ready. <laughs> I'm ready. Jillian, could you please introduce yourself? So my name is Jillian Richardson. I am the founder of The Joy List, which is a weekly newsletter of events that you can go to by yourself and leave with a new friend in New York City. And I am also the author of Unlonely Planet, a book about how to create spaces of belonging outside of organized religion. Nice title. Thank you. I was a little afraid there would be some legal issues with it, but I seem to be okay. Obviously, you wrote this book for a reason. Yes. And I get the impression that loneliness is deleterious to our health. This is true. Loneliness impacts your health just as much as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And when I say impacts your health, I mean it connects to an early death just as much as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, being an excessive drinker, 
for being obese. So think about in health class growing up, how many times it was hammered into us that drinking is bad, junk food is bad, smoking is bad. And there's no, at least in my health class growing up, there's no emphasis on the importance of connection and intimacy in friendships or in romantic relationships. So I just really feel a responsibility to talk about this because there's an imbalance in how much we're obsessing over these things that we think are so important. And they are in some ways our diet and our exercise and all of that stuff. But connection is just as important. And connection is actually the number one element that connects to a long lifespan. And of course, you can't profit off of connection. So people aren't telling us about this. Sure. And I think the answer is harder than don't smoke, don't drink, and don't eat Cheetos. Mm -hmm. Because it is actually more challenging to create connection and to live a less lonely life. Yeah. And it's vulnerable. It's super vulnerable. And it takes time to learn a skill set that a lot of people don't think is, quote unquote, like productive. Say like, oh, what am I going to go learn authentic relating? Or like, am I going to go make money and grow my business? A lot of people think that those skills are not important. You can do both. Yeah, and you can do both. You can totally do both. I think, I didn't phrase that super well. I think there's a lot of people who they think these skills are kind of silly or that, oh, well, these things should just come naturally to me. When really, as you talk about in your podcast constantly, these are things that are learned skills and there's no shame in needing to learn them. So FYI, people listening, we're going to talk about these fucking skills (laughs) on this episode of the podcast. You don't have to go anywhere else. You could just listen to this. At the end of the hour, you will have more skills on how to authentically relate to people, how to meet people, how to fucking be less lonely. Is that right, Jillian? Yeah, amen. (laughs) Also, I, I read something in your book that I find very important. You are clearly an extrovert. Mm, it depends. Okay. You are I'm gonna I'm gonna rephrase that. <clears throat> you don't strike me as the type of person who has a hard time meeting people. Yes. But I am the type of person like everyone else who struggles with deepening relationships. Sure. And what I want to say is just because you are good at meeting people and that you have a busy life doesn't mean that you can't also be terribly lonely. Oh, it is so true. Speaking as someone who literally my job is promoting events and places to create connection, if I'm not really careful, my week can just be filled with meeting shiny new people. And I meet them once and I probably never see them again or I see them a few months later. And then I'm left with this kind of hollow feeling because at my stage in life in New York City, I'm not actually the ideal reader for what I do anymore. Like I made the joy list for people who are in this very specific stage of life, which is I know that I need new friends. I don't know where to go 
to find the kinds of people and be in the type of settings that foster deeper connection. And that's a very specific type of person, but there's a ton of them. So I made this to cater to those people. And then going from, oh, I met this person at a cool meditation event. Now I want to have a conversation with them at least every week. That's a whole different thing. What you're talking about is really challenging to do as an adult, right? Mm -hmm. So it's fun to meet a new person that you connect with as an adult. It doesn't happen that often. And okay, I think it was unfair for me to label you an extrovert because I don't (laughs) know you. But what I do know from these last seven minutes or 14 minutes is that you are extremely exuberant. Yeah. And that can look a little bit like extroversion. So yeah. my, my apologies if I mislabeled you. Well, it's a thing that I'm struggling with myself, if I'm being honest. Uh, this might be getting too intense too quickly, but let's just go for it. Have you ever read the book, The Drama of the Gifted Child? No. Oh, boy. Okay. So it's one of those books where my friends and I joke that we should start a support group for people who just read this book. Because it's one of those books where it will tear apart your perception of what is real. Uh, it's by this author, Alice Miller, and it's based on the idea that if you grew up in a household where there's conditional love, meaning in my case, I got love for achievements and I got love for performing and I got love for being a golden child, it's hard for me as an adult to know what is my true personality and what is the personality that I perform for other people. and. The joy list is honestly a little bit from an old version of me that's really interested in people liking me and really interested in seeming agreeable and just kind of like the type of person who's who's liked by everyone. And as I've grown it, I've kind of learned that about myself, that I do have this deep desire for everyone to like me. And that that's not necessarily a healthy thing. And so realizing I am actually way more introverted than I've kind of molded myself to be. Uh, And I do think my, my core essence is like bubbly and kind of like exuberant, like you said. And I'm in a process of questioning that a little bit. Like, why am I this way? What made me this way? Is this serving me or is this serving other people? What I what I hear it coming down to is that whether you're introverted or extroverted, you too can suffer from deep, deep loneliness. Yes. Good, good summary of what I said. Very good. <laughs> everybody, it affects everybody. Yeah, it affects everyone. And it's deleterious to our health. Mm-hmm. And you are doing your part in breaking some of that isolation. Yeah. And I think really just reducing the shame around loneliness because from my experience, once I started running the joy list, it was like this key to this secret part of people that they never would have shown me otherwise. So I'm in a conversation with a stranger, like a 60 year old woman. And she's like, Oh, what do you do? 
And I say, well, I run this thing and I'm trying to make New York a less lonely place. And then suddenly she'll share, oh, you know, my two daughters, they just left for college and me and my husband just got divorced and I don't know where to go to meet any women my age and dating feels terrifying and I just have no idea what to do with myself. There's no way this woman would have told me that otherwise. And I get the gift of having people give me these little gems of who they are all the time. And that's what made me realize how deep of an issue this is. And that's when I started doing research. Most people think they're alone in this. And actually, loneliness impacts most people. You In the book, you talk about different sets of people or different groups who are affected by mm-hmm. this. Could you just like touch on a few? Because I hadn't really thought of many of those. Yeah. Yeah. And so the where that list came from was I used to do these things called social calendar calls. And I would have a conversation with a New Yorker about the type of community that they wanted to create for themselves. And I was expecting a very specific type of person to pay for this, if I'm being honest, like someone who recently moved to New York, probably has some issue making friends in general, probably like strong social anxiety. And what actually ended up happening was, like you said, all these different types of people. So a big one was couples. So it was couples calling together saying, our world is just the two of us and maybe two or three other couples. And we don't know where to go to just make other friends. It seems like all of our friends are married and with kids and suddenly our social world is tiny. And so that blew my mind that some of the first calls I had, it was kind of like couples counseling to hear both of these people in a romantic relationship, a thing that I deeply want for myself saying, oh, well, this isn't actually enough. We need real friendship and we're struggling with how to get that. Relationships can be incredibly isolating. Yeah. And if you think of couples who travel together, they barely, rarely meet anybody outside of their couple Mm -hmm. because they already have someone to talk to about everything. And if you travel solo, you are forced to meet people unless you just, you know, end up spending your whole vacation or whatever, your whole travel alone. Yeah. So yeah, I was I was sort of surprised that couples made the list, but then when I thought about it, it actually kind of makes sense. It, mm-hmm. And it also seems like they could break up and go meet friends individually and then bring those friends back to the and I don't mean break up. Don't break up <laughs> if you're lonely in your couple. Like separate separate for a bit. but not a separation. Uh, <laughs> go in different directions. But not forever. <laughs> Just to go make friends and then bring them back to your house. Yeah. It's so real. Those are the healthiest couples that I know uh, are people who I see them at events and they're by themselves. They're not with their partner because they know there's things that they enjoy doing on their own that them and their partner don't need to share everything together. And that actually by having an experience where they're meeting new people, they're recharged, they're feeling their worth, they're feeling belonging. They go back to their partner and it's like really sexy. It's like, oh yeah, like I am my own full person outside of you. People in the world like me. I have fun. I can contribute. 
Like, who doesn't like that? And I met a cool person to play soccer with on Wednesdays. Yeah. It's like, oh, yes, go play soccer. Yeah, go play soccer. And then you go do something else. And then let's come back together and talk about it. That, and actually, off the, the couple's note, a thing that's happened as people have started to kind of associate me with being the loneliness woman is I've had people, but particularly women, ask me to help their male partner. Make friends. <laughs> so, so they'll say like, oh, God, like this, I'm just making up his name, like John. He is too embarrassed to even ask his friend to go and get tacos. He can't do it. He feels too vulnerable, even just asking somebody to hang out. And I've heard this from multiple people and I've started asking men about it. And it seems like this is a little bit more deeply rooted for men than it is for women in my experience. Uh, I'm curious, actually, does that, does that land for you at all? Kind of this fear of just trying to create deeper friendships with other men? Hmm. Well, I moved to Montreal almost three years ago now. And as an adult, it's really hard to move to a new place where you don't know anybody. Even though I'm from here, I have a little bit of family, but I didn't really have any friends here except for one couple. And you can only hang out with the one couple so much until it feels <laughs> and you like... you become a thruple. Yeah. And it's an invasion of their relationship and and no one wants that. So it took a really long time for me to make friends. And most of the friends, I mean, I often connect quicker with women than I do with men. Mm-hmm. But I have a really solid group of man friends back in San Francisco that I still talk to on a regular basis. But it's been really hard to meet men here in Montreal and to build those connections. And now I'm just starting to like deepen some relationships with some guys here. Not very many. I think there's maybe three at the most that I'm beginning to deepen a connection with. Yeah. And it's not easy. I don't have a hard time asking anybody out for tacos though. But what I did do last year when I was feeling really lonely, and I am I'm extremely extroverted. And I'm very gregarious and confident and I get lonely often. I actually, this is, people are probably going to be surprised about this, but I spend, oftentimes spend my weekends alone. Yeah. And my therapist and I have been talking about this phenomenon that I don't really make plans with people. Like people don't ask me to hang out that often because I think they think that I'm really busy, that I have a full social calendar. And or they're they don't want to be rejected, so they're not going to ask me to do something. Or they've asked me in the past, and I said no, and so now they just don't ask me to do stuff. And so last year, I had to reach out to a bunch of friends and say, "Hey, if you're doing something fun, please invite me. I want more connection, and I have a hard time asking for it." And so all of a sudden, people were inviting me to more stuff. Yeah, that I was also saying no to. But at least I was getting invited more and I had the option to go. I think what you just said gives such good insight into the fear that a lot of people have, which is, oh, if I ask this person to hang out, they're going to reject me. And what you just said, I really want to emphasize to people listening, which is that when you ask someone to spend time with you, 
it's a gift. And even if they say no, like you said, it feels good to be considered and it feels good to be asked. And maybe you were busy that weekend, but you had a friend reach out and say, hey, I appreciate you. I appreciate your presence. I want to spend time with you. And that always feels good. There's never been a person in my life where if they invite me to something, I'm like, ugh, like, fuck this person. Well, that's not true. Well, I mean, yeah, there's people that I don't prioritize spending my time with, but still that they wanted to spend time with me. That will always feel good that it's like, okay, even if I don't like this person, even if for some reason I hate this person, they still, for some reason, in this weird timeline, really they enjoy me enough to still want to spend time with me. And that, a thing that all human beings want, which is to feel like we belong, to feel like we matter. And you're laughing at me. What is happening? I'm not laughing at you. It's <laughs> it, You have surpassed some level of consciousness where when someone that... that I, I'm just thinking about this in a dating context. Mm. If someone that you are not attracted to, that you would never want to go out with ever again, or that you had a bad experience, asked you out, you somehow have found a way to turn that into, oh, that's so great that they want to go out with me. I feel so grateful, even though I don't want to spend any time with them. Yeah, totally. I'm, great. That's why I'm, I'm laughing because <laughs> I haven't gotten there yet and I'm upset. That's all. <laughs> yeah, I think I've just lived so much on the other side of that. I've lived so both romantically and in friendships. In friendships, I've lived so much in the no one wants to spend time with me. No one cares about me. No one would notice if I didn't go out anywhere for two weeks. Like no one, no one gives a shit about me. And in the dating world, I've lived in the, oh, I'm not desirable. Men only want to be my friend. They don't want to date me. That old story that I'm sure other people share as well. And so I think now just people wanting to spend time with me always feels like a gift. I love it. It's a huge reframe. It's a big perspective shift for me, and I appreciate it. Mm, you are welcome. I'm just going to have to somehow figure out how to like tap into that. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> so where do we go from here? Oh, okay. Where do we go from here? Mm-mm-mm. Oh, so there's, there's one thing in the book that I've noticed... It's not in the conversation about loneliness that much, uh, which is, again, total turn into deep territory. But that's the connection between trauma and the ability that we have to connect with other people. Uh, when I when I sent out the book to advanced readers, this was the chapter that I got the most feedback on, which was like, wow, I had never considered before that my history of trauma impacts the depth of relationship that I feel like I deserve. And that maybe like a lot of people, there's stuff in my past that I don't even consider trauma that actually is. And I struggle to connect with people and I can't understand why. And now, so there's this thing called uh, an ACE score, which is adverse childhood experiences. And oh boy, I'm going to mess this up. I think there's 10 of them or eight of them. Well, I'm not sure. But it's experiences that you have in childhood that classify as trauma. 
And the higher your score is, the more likely you are when you're an adult to suffer from diseases, to die early, all these bad things, which sounds really dark. But along with the adverse childhood experiences score, there's also a thing known as a resiliency score, which is saying that even if you had a lot of trauma in your childhood, there are ways that you can counter that. And one of the best ways to counter that is with friendship. So there's this weird loop where trauma can prevent people from feeling like they deserve connection when really connection is the best way to heal from trauma. And the thing that I argue in the book is that this group healing spaces are so important and I wish more people knew about them and didn't kind of say it was hippie garbage uh, is because for me, for example, healing spaces that have really helped me are adult children of alcoholics. That's a group that has really helped me. And also women within, which is a group that helps women heal from trauma and my women's circle. And these are all spaces where I got to kind of haul out the parts of me that I thought were the ugliest and the worst and be met with love and then actually have some of the deepest relationships I've ever had. And I want everyone to have access to that. (laughs) Everybody should do some sort of 12-step program. I firmly, firmly believe that, but Mm -hmm. that's not realistic. It's not not realistic. And there's something really beautiful about the fellowship that comes from these from these healing groups. Yeah. Like I've been sober for 11 years. I I have a lot of experience with AA and Mm -hmm. can say that I certainly wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for that fellowship. Yeah. And those people saved my life, literally saved my life. What was it about AA that made it feel like a fellowship? Uh, Just feeling understood for the first time ever. Mm -hmm. Like when I walked in and the, and, uh, I walked in not knowing that I was an alcoholic and I walked out going like, oh, that's what's been wrong with me for so long. (laughs) So then what brought you into the meeting in the first place? Uh, Therapy, years of therapy and finally realizing that I had an issue with alcohol, but not thinking that I was an alcoholic, just that I needed to get some more control over the drinking. Got it. And then when I walked in there, I go, oh, I get it. And then I finally felt at home because I could sort of drop the defenses and let people see me and be vulnerable. I mean, and uh, most of the real growth that happened for me in in AA was by attending men's men's meetings Mm -hmm. and having a fellowship of, of men where I could be real and vulnerable and honest and not worry about what anybody else thought, what other, how I look to other women which has yeah. always been something I was concerned about. Totally. And though, I mean, those f- relationships I value more than some of my longer relationships with other yeah. men. That totally makes sense because you're getting so vulnerable. You're showing these parts of yourself that most people don't see and they're accepting you. And that creates really deep bonds. And if I feel like this is an interesting connection to this idea that yeah, we know how important community is. 
mm-hmm. right? We need community. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've been doing here in, Mo- in Montreal is building my own community by like finding my people, and yeah. which is incredibly hard to do. Yeah. It's so hard to do. Mm-hmm. And I fucked up a couple times where I was like, oh, I found my people. No, not my people, wrong people. <laughs> and that's okay. I mean, that's part of the learning, the learning process. And I've slowly over time built up something that makes sense. It's still not, you know, still not where I want to be. But one of the things that I realized is that it's not enough to have community. You have to get engaged with the people within the community. Yes. So showing up to a thing every week is awesome. It's certainly better than not showing up to a thing and being around people, but you Mm -hmm. also have to get to know those people. Yeah. And that applies in all communities. It's, I, I interviewed a pastor for my book and she was talking about how some people kind of have this idea that you just show up at church every week and you feel like you're part of the church community. And that's not actually how it works, that to be a real member of a church, you need to be contributing because that's how you feel like you belong is when there's a little bit, there's a part of you in the space because you're giving up yourself to others. And that doesn't just apply in church, that applies in any community. And a big point that I want to make in the book is exactly what you said, which is that people need to be giving their energy to creating their community. And that it's the thing that's really vulnerable. And especially if someone has low self-confidence, it's really hard. But to really feel like we belong, we need to, like I said, give of ourselves to something. So that could be, for example, when I first moved to New York City, I found this gathering called MediClub. And it's a monthly meditation and conversation. And there's like singing and dancing. That's great. And if I'd just shown up, it would have it would have been a cool experience and I would have met the same people every week. But instead, I volunteered at MediClub every month for maybe two years. <laughs> and they do a monthly give back where you go and you volunteer in the community with other people who value meditation. They started this thing called Circles where you get together and you meditate and have conversations with a themed group. And I helped to start the entrepreneurship circle and led the entrepreneurship circle. Yeah, I felt like I belonged. And the the man who runs the community or used to run the community, Jesse Israel, is one of the big reasons why I see myself as someone who can be a community leader because he saw what I was doing, just told me that he really respected the energy that I was putting into it. And he saw that I valued what he was trying to build. No matter what community people are interested in, there's a way to do something like that. So a thing that I tell people anytime they go to an event is, if you can volunteer, even if you can afford the ticket, just volunteer. It's way, way better than just showing up. So I lit up when I read that part of your book because one of my strategies has always been to show up really early at events. So if I can't volunteer, I'll show up early. Like when it starts. None of this fashionably late stuff because I find it's really easy to meet people at the very beginning of an event. Mm -hmm. So even if you're not... Yes, volunteering is awesome. But even if you can't volunteer in an official capacity, show up early 
and then ask if you can help like move chairs or whatever. And I remember I did this at Lila, one of Lila's events. So here's the power move, people. When you show up early, people think that you're part of the event. Yes, you have status. It is so wild. So if you have any fears around not fitting in, you immediately fit in because you have a job at the event. And status is... It's important. It helps. It helps. Yeah. Status helps at an event. I mean, that's why I worked at Burning Man for 10 years because you instantly have status and everything becomes easier. Mm-hmm. And when I went to Lila's event and I helped move chairs, people were coming to me to ask me things like, yeah. what could they do? And I was like, I have no idea. <laughs> but I'm so glad to meet you. I'm also just moving stuff around. And not only do you get to meet the organizers, So already now you're connected a little bit more to the people that that are hosting the event, Mm -hmm. but you get a little bit of status and you get to greet people as they come in. Yes. So you can just say like, oh, hey, welcome. And then already that's sort of a icebreaker. People remember you as the person that greeted them. I mean, the power moves are just on top. It's just one on top of the other. Yeah, it's... If there's one dip from this episode, it's probably that. Show up early and volunteer. Mm-hmm. You know, status is, it's, there's a lot of ego built up into it, but it can be really helpful in a situation like this. And I don't, for me, status in this, it's just like if you have social anxiety, this is a way to feel way more comfortable in a space. Because for me, even if I show up at an event and there's 200 people, I know no one, but my job is to check people in. I have a thing to focus on, I have permission to talk to everyone who comes in. And I have a relationship to the organizer. So I'm like, cool, I feel at home here. I just love permission to talk to everyone here, which you probably already do anyways. If you go to an event, you have permission to talk to almost everybody there. This is a thing that I've learned through running my own event. So once a month, I do an event called the Joylist Social, where New Yorkers come together to make new friends. And the thing that I make sure that I say, and this is a tip that I give any event organizer, is name the thing that everyone in the space has in common and name it multiple times. So for my event, I say, hey, like to the entire room, look around. Everyone who's here is here to make new friends. They are here because they want to talk to new people. And just through saying that a few times, people came up to me after and were like, hey, I'm so nervous in big group situations, but just because you gave us permission to talk to new people, I didn't feel scared. And it's such a simple tweak, but it makes such a big difference. Okay, let's do this. How, what are great ways to start conversations with people? I feel like you must have so many. Mm. Oh my goodness. I feel like you've said this on one of your episodes too, but just, hey, what's something that you're really excited about right now? Hey, what are you hoping to get out of this event? Do you know the organize? How do you know the organizers? Yeah, how do you know the organizers? Hey, I haven't met you yet. That's one of that's the one that I used at Lila's. I think you said that in an episode recently because I remember I wrote it down. I did. I'm I'm recycling my stuff. I don't have a lot of stuff. Well, you don't need a lot because I, I feel like if it's if there's too many lines and it's overwhelming and it's you're like that weird dude who's using lines on people. 
Totally. And what's exciting in your world? I'm that guy, even though I've been getting... I, I got actually just one person said they really, really disliked that. And what I want to say is, okay, like take what you want and leave the rest. Yeah. In life, mm-hmm. in everything in life. Yeah. If it doesn't work for you. Great. That's actually one of the tenets of Buddhism is like study it all. And then if whatever you don't like, fucking don't apply it. Yeah. I like it because I use it on dates a lot. If someone doesn't have an answer to what's exciting in your world right now, they are not going to be able to handle me. <laughs> okay, let's let's dig into this a little bit because there's there's an idea in your book that intimacy is built slowly over time. Mm-hmm. And that you can't go too quick yes. into it because it's like some breach of protocol or something. I don't know exactly what it's called. But this person said that what's exciting in your world is actually too intimate for an opening question. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So for them, I'm curious what their answer would have been that would feel too intimate to share. Because I was thinking like, oh, I'm going to Mexico next month. Yeah. That doesn't, to me, doesn't feel like overly intimate. And I think I just want to trust that people can share to the level that feels comfortable to them. I don't feel, I feel like that question is kind of choose your own adventure. How much vulnerability do you want to give? You could say, oh, I'm really excited because Stranger Things just came out. Or you could say, oh, I'm really excited. This isn't true for me, but like, I'm really excited. I haven't talked to my dad in 10 years and we're having a conversation tomorrow. Like that's, you could, <laughs> the, whole, that's the whole spectrum. That's, that's the whole deal. Oh yeah, I'll, what's I'll ask you what's exciting in your world? For real in my world right now? Yeah. So two things. One, my friend is having a marriage vows renewal ceremony tomorrow. I've never seen one of those before and I'm fascinated by gatherings. So I'm really excited to see that. And then on Sunday, I'm leaving for this thing called the Institute of Sacred Temple Arts for a week. Wait, Ista? Yeah. Oh, I know about who's your okay, cool. Ista. Also very intimate. Hello. Yep. I wouldn't know that if I didn't know Ista. Mm-hmm. I would be like, oh, temp- temple arts, like you're gonna draw stuff. You'd be like, yes, exactly. Yeah, there's <laughs> by the way, no drawing. If anybody uh is listening, if anybody hello, is anybody listening? Uh the first episode on uh, Desires, Fears, and Boundaries with Frank Mondoze. He's an, he's an ISTA. He's going to be one of my teachers. There you go. He's an ISTA facilitator. Whoa. That's exciting. Yep. So I'm going to... My thing is I just love going to the edge of human experience. Like if you looked at my calendar in a year, you'd be like, Jesus, Jillian just ripped herself open like 10 times this year. Like I don't drink, I don't do drugs, but I scream and cry with strangers a lot. So, okay, that's... Wow, that's so exciting. I, I wish you would ask me what was exciting in my world. Hey, Sean. Hey, Jillian. This is just a totally random question that just came to my mind. What's exciting in your world right now? Wow. Um, gosh, so hard to pick. I uh, just bought a new bicycle today. Mm. Like, it's lime green. It's totally not a cool color, but it's a really cool bike. And I'm excited about that. I'm going canoe camping for the first time this weekend. And I bought a 
life jacket for my dog. Next week, I'm doing a facilitation workshop because I want to facilitate live events and I'm terrified to do it. And so when I'm scared of something, I just go and like do a workshop or sign up for a course or learn yeah. from somebody. See, it, either if we were just at an event or if we were on a date, either one, I am looking for people like you who are like, oh God, I have so many things I'm excited about right now. Because I know about myself, I'm one of those people who's like, blah, 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 blah. here's the 8 million things I'm excited about. And there's some people who I've met where they're kind of like, oh, I can't really think of anything right now. Or like, <laughs> the answer I get a lot is, uh, I'm excited just to like catch up on sleep, which is valid. Sleep is very important. Sleep is very important. Not your, not your type of person. Yeah, well, because I know from my experience with at least men like that, I can, I can feel like a very overwhelming presence. And I don't want to feel overwhelming. I want to feel matched. So people who have a lot of exciting stuff going on, we're typically a better match. I'm going to use this opportunity to transition a little bit to this thing that I read in your book, which was sort of a comment that came out of, was it like a comment to a TED Talk or something about connection? And yeah. the the people, I think they were men. Were they men? I mean, it's hard to tell. I imagine them as men in my head. Right. But who knows? Basically, men that were saying like, you don't understand how isolating my life is when I go home at the end of the week, I don't see another person until I go back to work. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm imagining that maybe it's hard for people that are listening right now to connect because you and I, like you said in your book, you have almost all of the privilege that can be afforded to a person. And mm -hmm. I feel like I actually have all of it because I'm a man. Yeah. So we have together so much privilege. <laughs> We're overly privileged. And for us, or, uh, and I don't want to, what's the, not um, mitigate, not mitigate, not minify, the sort of like minify. What's, is there another word to minify? <laughs> Minimize the fact that it, it is also challenging for us to meet people and to make connection. We, we, we can we can agree on that, but for some people, it is immensely challenging. For sure. And a thing that I'll say, one is that, of course, I can only speak from my own personal experience. The book is based around my own personal experience, and I share the stories of other people, but responsibly, all I can do is share from what I've learned in my own life. But a thing that I think a lot of people don't understand about loneliness is that it's a self-perpetuating cycle. And I'm going to mess up the science on this, so I'm going to use very vague terms. But when we're isolated for a certain amount of time, it becomes harder for people to understand facial cues. So for example, if I'm sitting across from you and you're giving me a really neutral face, if I'm in a really lonely state, I could look at your face and think, Sean hates me. Sean, he's like, he's frowning at me because we're on high alert. When we're isolated for a certain amount of time, we're, we're on the lookout for danger. And our brain starts to perceive things that are neutral as dangerous or negative. And so that's why when people who are kind of, they're stigmatized as loners because they, they're alone, they go in social situations, and then everything they see confirms that they should just stay alone. And so to anyone who's listening who maybe feels that way, that's totally normal. And I acknowledge in the book that 
it's it's a muscle to get out and meet new people. And it takes a certain amount of privilege, like you said, to be able to say like, oh, cool. I have the time to look for events. I have the time to go to the event. In some cases, I have the money to pay for the event. I am able-bodied enough to participate in this event. I don't have chronic pain. I don't have any diseases. I'll feel comfortable there because of my age. All of these things. Where in New York City, this is from my own the the world that I'm in. A lot of the events that I'm in are mostly white, mostly upper class, mostly able-bodied people. And so if a 70-year-old Asian man came to me and said, hey, I'm looking for spaces where I can feel totally comfortable being around a lot of new people, I would have way less spaces for him. And if he says, oh, also I'm in a wheelchair. And so I want to make sure it's handicap accessible. It's even fewer spaces. So a thing that I emphasize in the book is that we need to create the spaces we want to see. And it's difficult if you're a person who there's not a lot of spaces for you. You don't have the time, energy, resources to make those spaces. Because right now in American society, being a community builder is not a valued job. We see it as a thing where kind of, oh, anyone can do it. You shouldn't be paid well for this. It's not like, oh, you're in finance and so you're giving back into the economy. It's kind of like women's work. It's soft skills. When really, I feel like these are the most important things that we could ever do. And so I end every chapter with questions to consider because there's so many questions that I just want to have conversations about. And this is one of them, which is how can we value community builders more? and give people the resources to create the kind of spaces that they want to see. I haven't had time to think about that question. <laughs> Sean, give me the answer. Shit, man. I mean, you know, the one thing that I that, that comes up for this, and this is, God, so irrelevant, but as you were talking about soft skills, I'm thinking about like robotic automation. And soft skills is something that robots actually are really terrible at. Yeah. And connection cannot be replaced by robots. Yep. Or social media. Mm-hmm. And like it might feel like connection, but you know, we do, we need to do the work and we need to, like you said, find the connectors and we need to build the spaces that we want to see or the events that we want to see. Yeah. And I also, not to be defeatist, like I just see this as such a huge challenge. Oh, it's such a huge challenge. This is not a career for me, it's a vocation. Right. Like this is a thing that, I want to dedicate my whole life to because this is so complicated. It's such a giant systemic issue. And there's a lot, a lot, a lot of work that needs to be done. Yeah, I wrote that somewhere. Uh, loneliness is a systemic issue. Mm-hmm. And it affects everybody. Mm-hmm. America is designed for people to be lonely. It just is. And the community centers are dead. Community centers are not a thing really anymore, at least in most towns. That's the thing I'm in a lot of conversations about in New York City is how do we create more common spaces where people can come and connect? I'm, a, I'm helping create to create a nonprofit community center in Williamsburg. Mm. And it's only one space. I, I helped a friend do a pop-up community center called the, the Empath Pop-Up. 
earlier this month. And people loved it because it was just a space that was open all day where you could come and drop in and just hang out in kind of like a public living room. And I heard from so many people, like, it's really hard for me to make friends. I don't know where to go to just form deeper connections. And this just immediately answered my my problem. And they don't exist that much. So this is another thing that I want to talk about, which is how do we make this happen? How do we have more of these community centers? Because they cost money. They're not money-making things, but they're they're like a public health initiative. And you need programming. Yeah. Because you can't just have like a living room mm-hmm. with no programming. Like That will work to a certain degree, but people need a little bit more guidance. Yeah. This is probably not helpful to anybody who doesn't live in Montreal, but that's actually not true. But I'm going to invite people that are lonely to come and check out this organization that I volunteer for called the Centre Paul Roulin, which Mm. is a Meals on Wheels organization. And their whole mission, interestingly enough, is to uh, break the social isolation of people with reduced mobility. Mm. Right. So they make five meals a week, so five nights. Uh, volunteers go and deliver a, a city-subsidized dinner. And so either you deliver on foot, by bus, or um, I think there's like a couple car routes or on, or on bicycle. And, you know, the volunteers are encouraged to spend time with the clients, mm-hmm. right? So the recipients of the meals can choose to invite us in for tea or chat with us at the door and it's really like we are available for that if they choose and Mm -hmm. sometimes often a lot of these clients we are the only people they will see all day yeah and they get dressed up for us to to receive the meal and to have us maybe a five minute conversation at the door about the weather or you know how long we've been working for this organization so it's doing a lot of great work in this respect. But what I've also found is that the volunteers are drawn to this organization also to break their social isolation. Mm -hmm. And I gravitated towards that organization when I moved here. And immediately after, so I've made friends from there on the routes. Now I work for their bike shop. So there's also a whole bunch of collectives attached to the organization. There's a bike shop, there's a mushroom collective, there's a compost collective. We call them the worm people because worms make the compost. There's a bee collective. There's a farm. So anyways, this is an organization that does so much. And when you walk into it, there's a bunch, there's like a living room space with a bunch of couches. And you can go and hang out there every day if you want. And so there are these organizations and we do need to support them. We do need to find them and either volunteer there or uh, help them reach their goals, right? So like through financing or promoting like I'm doing right now. I'm super not paid by these people, by the way. I just love them <laughs> so much. Yeah, well, okay. So going off of that, one, I love hearing about this because these spaces, they deserve to be shouted out. They're doing amazing work. And also, if anyone listening knows of spaces like this anywhere around the world, please send them to me because I'm working on expanding the joy list around the world this year. I have people interested in leading it in 20 cities and six countries so far. And I need to know about these spaces. I have, I have a list of community building resources on my website 
And I love adding to it. I love shouting these spaces out and getting them more traffic because to me, they're doing the most important thing you can do, which is creating connection. Oh gosh, what's your website called? So my website right now is joylist.nyc. And eventually that'll change to joylist.com. But when it does, it'll redirect. So it doesn't matter. Oh, and if I wanted to send you that resource, where would I send it to? You would send it to hey at joylist.nyc. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> uh, so you're, you are aggregating these community building organizations with the hopes to be able to offer this to people in other communities. Yeah. I think I already have such a wealth of knowledge about the New York City ecosystem, but in order to expand this project to other cities, there's just so much I don't know. And also just sometimes people come to my website because they're doing research on community building. (laughs) I appreciate that you just took off your headphone to just like stick your finger in your ear for a second. (laughs) See, I don't normally do video and it wouldn't be an issue. I mean, it's not an issue, but I didn't, I was like looking at you, but also not realizing that I also was on video. You are seeing. I see you, Sean. I appreciate that. And yeah, I just had to like fully stick my finger in my ear and like squeak it three times. To it was, I was itching it, but it was deep in the canal. So, anyways, you were saying that people do research on community building stuff. Yes. Um, Sometimes people find me (laughs) just because they're trying to find information on intentional living communities in New York, or I don't know just different community spaces. I'm not sure exactly what they're Googling, but they'll find my page and then there's this giant list of resources and they'll reach out and ask to add stuff. So I like having it. In your book, you talk about... I'm just going to switch gears. Relationship building tactics Mm -hmm. that we can learn. There were three. Vulnerability, positivity, and consistency. Mm -hmm. So these are sort of three ways in which we build relationship. And so that doesn't come from me. That comes from this woman, Shasta Nelson, who wrote a book called Frontimacy. And I reference her a lot in my book in one chapter because the work that she's doing is amazing. Uh, She's one of the only people doing research on friendship. And that's what she found from talking to so many people about how they created consistent friendships. So it's, yeah, it's being vulnerable in a relationship because at least for me, when someone is vulnerable with me in conversation, it's signaling, I trust you. I want to deepen this relationship. I feel safe. And that to me feels good. It's like, oh, okay, we're building something here. We're going deeper than surface level. And of course, vulnerability, it's in stages. I'm not just going to tell you my deepest secret the first time I meet you, even though knowing me, I probably will, but you shouldn't do that. And then consistency. So this is the thing that I tell people all the time, and it feels so scary to them, which I understand. But it's just saying to someone like, hey, Sean, I think you're really cool. We both live in really busy cities, and I'm trying to create deeper friendships right now. Would you feel comfortable hanging out once a week and just scheduling it or every other week, whatever feels comfortable to you? And that's like, yeah, that's a lot. And maybe that's 
I would say that's something that you do maybe after you've hung out with someone a few times. But my friends and I, we have to do that. Like if we don't schedule time to see each other, we just won't because we live in New York City. We're traveling a lot. We have very full, rich lives. So that's another thing. And the last thing is positivity, which that one, I think it's, I have like a mixed relationship with. Great. So do I. Yeah. Because yes, of course, when I meet someone for the first time, if they're like dumping all their shit on me, yeah, that's not good boundaries and I'm going to feel uncomfortable around that person. But at the same time, like I shared before, some of the best relationships I have with people are when I was not in a positive headspace. I was just being real. And so for me, and of course, Shasta's not here. She can't explain why that's one of the things. I feel like, especially in the world that I'm in in New York City of like, conscious community building and mindfulness. It's just like there's there can easily be this thing of like positive vibes only. Like I'm always in a good headspace. And so when I say to someone, hey, how are you? And they say, oh, actually I'm feeling kind of stressed out and I'm feeling like tension in my stomach and I have a little bit of a headache and I wish I was more present right now than I actually am. To me, I'm like, whoa this is a person I want to know. It's giving me insight into their world instead of them kind of giving me the most surface answer they possibly can. And now I have no better understanding of them at all. I'm fine. (laughs) Yeah, I'm fine. And I understand why people say that. But for me, especially as I've, I've done more what's called like circling, which is kind of an interpersonal meditation practice, I've gotten way better at noticing in my body what's happening And I love it when people tell me kind of small things about what's going on in their body. And that's totally not a normal thing to do. I acknowledge that in most conversations, people aren't like, oh, I'm noticing I feel kind of tension in my head and I feel like a little bit dissociated. I feel like I'm not totally here. I feel like I'm back at my house and I'm still looking at my emails. But to me, I'm just like, oh, this is a person I want to know because they understand themselves. And they trust me enough to hold that they didn't just say, fine. I think there has to be a a measured Mm -hmm. amount of vulnerability. What you were talking earlier about someone just dumping everything on you right when you meet them, I call that puking on my shoes. (laughs) Why? Just because I just walked up and you just puked on my shoes. Yeah. Right? It's it's inappropriate. It's an inappropriate amount of uh, disclosure. And you're also not reading the the social cues, which make it inappropriate for you to just sort of dump everything on me without warning me. Yeah. But if you say like, you know what, actually, I've been having kind of a like a rough day, and if you're open to it, I'd love to share it with you. I think it would really would it actually really help me out. That's different. That's mm-hmm. not puking on my shoes. And also, as a friend. I don't care if you puke on my shoes. If a friend does that to me, you know, you you can hold a friend's hair out of the toilet while they puke every now and then, and you're happy to do it because that's not how they always are, and that's not, not also what they did when they met you right off the bat. Yeah. So I think we're talking about like measured vulnerability and intimacy, and it kind, mm-hmm. kind of comes back to like intimacy building slowly over time. But what I'm hearing is that 
you're the type of person that would appreciate a little bit more of that internal rawness when you meet somebody. Like you, you're the type of person who can handle it. Yeah, for sure. And I'm the type of person who believes that the world needs more of this. Because when I moved to New York City, I'd literally never met someone who would answer that question that way. I didn't know it was possible to answer that question that way. And when I started to meet people like that, it just opened this whole new world of like, well, one, this person seems to be aware of their body. And it seems like their body's reactions are connected to feelings, which like, it sounds so obvious. But three years ago, I wasn't thinking about that at all. Mm. You're growing, obviously. Lots of things have happened to you since you've come to New York. (laughs) And you're also prioritizing relationships with people that can kind of meet you in a place that you're more comfortable. Mm -hmm. Totally. I am a sucker for deep connection. Like if I'm in a place where it's surface level connection, it's like, I feel frustrated. I get annoyed and I want to leave. So I, my work as well is to learn to be compassionate and meet people where they're at and not push people beyond what they're comfortable with. If we had to leave people with one or two ways that they can start putting this into practice right away, other than reading your book, obviously, because that would give you all of the ways. But if we had to leave them with a few ways that they could start putting this into practice in their life, how would we do it? Yeah, I think one is doing a thing that you talk about a lot, which is just being honest and naming what it is that you want. Say, hey, you seem really cool. I'm going to, I don't know, this improv class next week. Do you want to come with me? Starting to ask people and just like going to new things, it's a muscle. At first, it's going to feel terrifying to do this. And that is totally normal. And at first, it's going to feel terrifying to show up at a space where you know no one which is why volunteering is great. Show up early. Show up early. Volunteer. <laughs> um, well, what you're talking about right there is called daring. You daring have, greatly. Yeah, you have to dare. Not even greatly. Just dare. Yeah. Dare to ask someone to spend time with you. And, and it can be really scary because rejection is terrifying. But when you don't ask somebody you're actually rejecting yourself before someone else can reject you. Yeah. And to keep in mind those stats that I said earlier, which is chances are, and this especially applies to friendship, chances are if you're just asking someone to hang out in a friendship capacity, the person you're asking is not satisfied with their friendships. So to give you actually quick some more stats. Yeah, give us the stat that you didn't give us that we're now talking about because that's a really important one. Yeah. So. 75% of people are not satisfied with the friendships that they have. Straight up three quarters of people. Three out of four people, when you meet them, they are not satisfied with their friendships. And you could be the person that makes them satisfied with their friendships. And also, so the average American has one friend. The average American has not made a new friend in five years. So probably this person that's in front of you is desperate for someone to ask them to hang out. They are wanting to up-level their friendships and you are the person that will help them get there. So you're doing them a disservice by not asking them to hang out. 
It's true. And that's rude. It's Yeah, don't be rude. Don't be rude. This is really important. This is a really important piece. Most people are unsatisfied with their friendships. Yeah. They're looking for different people to hang out with. So go ask people to hang out with. Yeah. It feels really good. Speaking of someone who I host a lot, it's just the best feeling in the world. Especially like if you host at your house, I recommend just host a brunch, have it be potluck, say, you can invite just 10 people and say, hey, bring someone who you want to get to know a little bit better. You're immediately going to have 10 new friends, at least, because those 10 people are going to bring 10 other people. It's the best. But now you have 100 people at your house. <laughs> the math in my head just totally <laughs> Okay. Whoa, that's an intense brunch, by the way. I mean, I like the way you do things. That's not going to work for me because I am like a control freak. And also, I was thinking 20 people in my brain. <laughs> well, but you said everybody bring one person. Okay. So, yeah, it's 20 people. I don't know where I got 100 from. I think I'm going to have to re listen to this and then edit it to make it me sound smart. Good luck. That's why I edit. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you dare to invite people, host people. By the way, I host people often, but I, I host people in like ones and twos, often just ones. And I got to say, when someone invites me to their house, it feels great. I, yeah. I love being invited to people's houses. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's such tiny little details that can make someone a great host. It's so easy. Yeah, and actually this is, a thing that I tell to event producers as well is greet people with intention. So if it's at an event, you're welcoming people when they come. You ideally have something for them. Like, hey, here's a piece of chocolate. I'm so happy you're here. Welcome. So that people just, they're like, oh, I'm seen when I'm entering this space. Give them permission to talk to somebody else. So even if I'm hosting a brunch at my house, you come in I'm like, hey, Sean, welcome. Uh, do you want Do you want some tea? We have these three types of tea here for you to choose from. Oh, by the way, this is this is Kendra. She's she's a dating coach. You would love to talk to her. It's the most pro move ever. It's if you watch someone who's a good host, what they do is they just take someone who even if they're connected to you in the most shallow way, but it's giving you permission to talk to each other. Be like, "Oh my gosh, she also has a dog. She loves dogs. You two should talk to each other." And then they walk away. Then they remove themselves from the conversation and just continue to circle and pair people. It's the best. That's brilliant. Oh, hey, Jillian. Meet Scott. Both of you have never played tennis before. (laughs) And then you just fade away. They're like, whoa, that's such a weird introduction. (laughs) But somehow he's right. I have never played tennis before. Yeah. Like, wow. Also, you get points because one... You remember the name of both these people. You remember a fact about both these people. And you took the time and energy to connect them. Now we're talking about being a badass at running events 101. Yeah. So I'm like, this is another thing I talk about constantly. You'll be less lonely. Even if you're doing a tiny gathering, this is a great way to make friends. Again, it's the status thing. It's like, oh, you're, she's a host. Not only are we asking you to dare to invite people to do stuff, but we're also inviting you to quite possibly host people. 
yes, this is the last chapter of the book. It's all about stepping into leadership as a gatherer. And that could be smaller, it could be big. And I really do believe, like I say, the world needs more connection. The world needs more people who are brave enough to call themselves gatherers and bring people together because it solves our own personal loneliness. And it's also the gift of solving other people's loneliness. And it's scary. And again, like we talked about before, it's time and energy and resources, and it's not the right fit for everyone. And it's sometimes it's easier to host at different stages of your life. But in my experience, the biggest gift that I've given myself in New York City has been bringing people together. And my newsletter is a way that I kind of digitally do that. Now, anytime I need something, I have people who are there for me because I've given to them time and time and time and time and time again without expecting anything. And now it's just like my my worldview is so skewed towards people are giving and amazing. And if anytime I need help with something, people will help me because that's what You disappeared again. No. Sign out, sign back in. We are having some technical issues with the system that I'm using to record this interview. This world is full of abundance. Okay. Is, isn't the world full of abundance? The world is full of abundance. Can you hear me? Yeah, we're going to have to wrap this interview up because I don't want that to happen again. Yeah. So this is the abundance mentality. Yeah. There is enough for, for everybody, including friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that I want to say is I've been reading M. Scott Peck. People are going to know this because I keep bringing it up over and over again. The Road Less Traveled. Buy it. Thank me later. Problems will not solve themselves unless you dedicate energy to them. Yeah. And the problem of loneliness will not go away on its own. Mm-hmm. You will have to do some work. You will have to dedicate some energy, resource, and time to solving this issue. But it is worth it because it's a systemic issue and it is deleterious to your health. And I that makes me sad. Yeah. And I want you to be happy. Let's all live to 120, y'all. Let's just hang out. That's excessive, but <laughs> I see where you're coming from. That's that's a lack mindset. I'm in an abundance mindset. So uh No, I was saying it's excessive. That's that is also an abundance mindset, is it not? <laughs> so uh where can we find you other than the, the two places that you already told us? Why don't you just tell us again? Great. Okay. So if you want to find the joy list, go to joylist.nyc is the website. If you want to email me, it's H E Y at joylist.nyc. And if you want to learn about me as a human being, you can go to that Jillian, J-I-L-L-I-A-N.com. What about the book? The book, what a good question. It is called Unlonely Planet and it is available on Amazon. Last question, final question. What does love mean to you? Mm, I knew you would ask this question. Uh, so to me, love means that people are willing to get a little bit uncomfortable for the benefit of somebody else. That's great. Sort of like extending oneself. Yeah. Or like doing, doing work that if we're on our own, a lot of things would arguably be easier and being in a relationship is hard and being in a relationship is inconvenient sometimes. And in relationship, I have to do things that I don't necessarily want to do 
but I care about the other person. So you're going to do them. Yeah. Love is hard work sometimes. Yes. And friendship is hard work sometimes. But it's worth it. But it's worth it. That's why we're doing this. That's why we're doing this. Thank you, lovebirds, for spending this hour with me and Jillian this week. It means so much to me. And remember, this month is Podcast Appreciation Month. And if this show is having a meaningful impact on your life, if it is bringing you joy and understanding and a deeper awareness around your emotional existence, and if you are learning some real shit here, and you want this show to continue, and you want to thank me in a meaningful way, then I invite you to become a contributing lovebird by making a small but amazingly important monthly contribution to me and this show. You can do that by going to thelovedrive.com forward slash join. Thank you. Thank you so much and have a beautiful week.